Welcome to the Oxford Berlin Creative Collaborations podcast. In this series, we showcase research projects across the arts and humanities, drawing on expertise from the University of Oxford and the Berlin University of the Arts, and integrating scientific methodologies with artistic expression. Welcome to our podcast exploring the legacy of the German intellectual, keen observer of rapid change in Germany's interwar period, and the father of cultural studies, Walter Benjamin. Leading us through this richly populated and creative period are Carolyn Duttlinger, Professor of German Literature and Culture at the University of Oxford, and Daniel Widener, Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Halle. Both are executive board members of the Walter Benjamin Society. Let's start with what attracts you to Walter Benjamin. So, I mean, Benjamin is a huge name, really, in 20th century thought. He is really one of the most frequently referenced and explored thinkers. And I think the appeal of Benjamin for many people across many fields and disciplines is that he himself can't be reduced to a particular discipline or subject area, but he really ranges across a very wide range of areas from literature to media studies, history, anthropology, and so on. But I think what interests Daniel and I in this project is really that Benjamin was not just a scholar, but he was also a journalist, someone who actually had to make a living from the 1920s onwards as a journalist. And in Benjamin research, I think it's fair to say that these journalistic writings have not been as closely explored, have not received as much attention. I mean, Benjamin, as he was young, obviously intended to have an academic career that would be quite typical for a well-educated Jewish child, namely becoming a, at some point a teacher at the university. But Uh, The Weimar Republic began with a huge financial crisis, which basically uh, made this form of career close to impossible. That is the basic biographical turning point, that he wanted to be a German professor. And once his dissertation was rejected, it was clear he couldn't do that anymore. So he had to just make a living in some other way. He had a young son. He had a wife to support. His parents did support them financially at different times, and they sometimes actually lived with Benjamin's parents to save money. I mean, by the late 20s, I think his marriage was beginning to break down. He had probably already grown estranged from his wife. He had fallen in love with a Russian or a Latvian theater director whom he had followed to Moscow. I mean, I think the 20s generally were a time of great uncertainty. And unfortunately for Benjamin, the 30s weren't much better because, of course, then we move from this sort of life of a relatively unstable journalist to exile in France. And one of our aims with this project is also to see how Benjamin's journalism and his networks change over these different time periods. A lot of the intellectual creativity is ironically uh, an effect of the fact that those guys didn't have the, uh, the quite 
standard academic careers they, they hoped for. So they had to be really creative to do other things. And that's, uh, in that respect, these two things really interchange. On the other hand, obviously, these, uh, the growing market of uh, newspapers, journals, etc., of, offered also the venues to publish one's own ideas, even if they are not very, whatever, not standard by any way. So it's both a, a kind of a risk and a chance in this uh, in this open situation. And maybe just to add, so 1925, Benjamin realized he would not be able to pursue an acad academic career. His professorial dissertation was rejected by Frankfurt University. And then shortly afterwards, his father died. Um, Benjamin had always assumed he would inherit from his father, who was a wealthy art merchant, typical upper middle class family, but the father was one of countless Germans who had been left practically impoverished by the hyperinflation of the early 20s. And so it is a very interesting, typical German biography really for the time. And of course, many pages have been written about the impact of that on later developments, but it's clear that Benjamin is not alone in this um, kind of experience. I think the other interesting thing is that actually up until 1925, Benjamin wasn't particularly interested in contemporary culture, mass, mass culture, journalism, film, media, you know, the avant-garde, all of these topics that we've come to associate him with. So nowadays, I think people think he was this sort of groovy bohemian who was always hanging out with artists and you know, constantly sort of deeply immersed in popular culture. But he was actually a fairly traditional literary historian who was writing about the romantic art theory and then about 17th century German drama. So he wasn't really interested in the contemporary world. And then he had to make this U-turn. And so it's an interesting inverse causality. In a sense, it is because he was forced into the journalistic marketplace that he started to engage with all of these topics. I mean, I think it was an obvious thing to do. He had various friends, very importantly, Siegfried Krakauer, the arts editor of the Frankfurter Zeitung, the main German daily newspaper at the time, who helped him in this. So I think that's where the personal contacts are really, really important. But you could almost say that it's because of this personal crisis and then his personal contacts that he really became who he has become known as, which is someone who engages with contemporary culture. What is specific in these journalistic writings is, as always with journalism, that here he is not a solitary thinker, but really very much in dialogue and in constant negotiation with other positions. And what we are specifically in, interested in in our project is that to reconstruct and rethink this dialogue or these, these kind of field of tension of networks also uh, of hi hybridity of, of different formations, different discourses as Caroline has said, but also quite different positions from left to right. Uh, and journalistic writing due to its imminent mobility and also its uh, pluralistic authorship uh, is immediately uh, political and mobile in the way I just uh, highlighted. He was quite proactive in asking to review certain books and in other contexts he probably just had to take on a certain commission because he needed the money. And so I think it also sort of 
cuts across this idealistic idea we have of the writer as someone who is sort of like the author in control of his writings at all times, which I think was never true, but maybe with the sort of idea of the writer as a genius, maybe that sort of idea was very prevalent in the 18th and 19th centuries. But I think certainly by the early 20th century and the Weimar Republic, writers became very, very dependent on having to make a living and therefore to compromise in many ways. I think Daniel might also have a few thoughts to add at this point. I mean, it's, uh, these texts are quite open for reading as a kind of experimental writing. It's, it's an experiment with numerous, where Benjamin coming from academia, really being used to a very academic philologian stuff, adopts himself to new forms of writings as uh, the short comment, the review, etc. And tries, to, even before he had kind of observed that the media landscape is uh, changing quickly, and now he's trying to use his experience uh, to transform his uh, writing to a more uh, open way in a way. And these, these forms of experiments we consider as very important especially because they also, they have to be seen in a context of, it's not a solitary work, it's there are many other writers who uh, make a quite similar way, if you will, Dietrich Krakow would be an example uh, to transform the more kind of, uh, 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 more thick volumes into, into very lean articles. That's something that is very much in place. You could also go back into the 19th century, of course, if you think of writers as Heinrich Heine, who really transformed themselves from being poets into poet journalists. Uh, and this we think is a very, very important issue, especially so since academia still tries to downplay this effect because of, of course academians try to treat other academians mostly as academians as if everyone would always write collected volumes uh, and so this journalistic mode is, has always been pushed into the background or downplayed and I think it's high time to, to have a different perspective on that. Do you think that particular um, disregard, we can almost say, of his journalistic writing that you, with your research, now try to make up for, is that connected to perceived split in German culture between serious culture and entertainment culture, ernsthaft and, and, and unterhaltung? Would you see a connection there? Definitely. I mean, it has a lot to do with the history of German literature already in the 18th and 19th century, in some way culminating at the beginning of the 20th century, where kind of uh, a strict literary art tends to delimit itself very sharply against uh, everything kind of uh, popular culture, popular writing, journalism. There's a famous saying by Hugo von Hofmann style, uh, to be quoted first in German and then in English. Der Dichter schafft im Angesicht der Ewigkeit, der Journalist schreibt Tag. So the poet creates facing eternity, whereas the journalist writes for the day. 
which means ephemeral, um, not of, uh, of uh, continuous value, et cetera, et cetera. That's a very uh, widespread uh, form, especially when it was the emergence of mass media. Most uh, writers tend to make this sharp distinctions. There are some, uh, we already mentioned Heinrich Heine, Ludwig Börner, there would be, there would be some, of course, who uh, tend to, uh, who adopted that and, and faced them in a more positive way. And it's only then later that, uh, as said, academia tends to uh, reintegrate these writings into, into collected volumes uh, as if that would be the same as Hoffman's style. I mean, maybe to add to that, I do think it's a very interesting question as someone who's now lived in the UK for over two decades. I think there is still a kind of heritage of that in German culture and cultural debate today. So for instance, I think the German book market, so, you know, particularly novels that get published nowadays, there's a very clear split between highbrow literature that is published by certain publishers and read by certain people and discussed, let's say, on the radio or in literary discussion forums and popular literature. And my impression is that, for instance, English-speaking narratives or novels can't quite be divided in the same way. So if you think of the big English literary awards like the Booker Prize, they really very often cut across that divide. I mean, maybe to come back to Benjamin's time and to add to what Daniel has just said, it is interesting how at that time, more people begin to speak up for this shorter, sort of lighter, more accessible form of writing. So you get the Austrian, writer Alfred Polgar, who in a very famous essay praises what he calls the little forms of writing. Mm -hmm. And then a few decades later, you get the philosopher Adorno, who of course is not generally known for his particularly accessible style or his liking of mass culture, but he then in the 60s writes an essay where he actually defends the essay as a form of thinking as a mode of intellectual expression. And I think he does that very clearly against the academic culture that still, of course, is very influential today, where certainly in Germany, you don't write essays, you write articles. And then, of course, you write books and they have to have lots of footnotes and so on. So I think what's fascinating is that Benjamin is, of course, an academic to some extent, although he's a failed academic by the standards of German academia. Um, but he also continues to sort of hold on to principles of academic writing. But I think the reason he failed in the first place was that he never really fitted into that standard of academic writing in the first place and is quite suspicious of the sort of huge systematic studies that are very common, especially in German philosophy. You mentioned earlier his connection, his interconnection with other writers. So I was wondering if those connections can somehow be explained with a mind map model. I mean, we are here in the in the age of postage, right? People write letters to each other pr practically all the time. I, they would also pick up the telephone. That is obviously much more difficult to reconstruct. People who would work more professionally as Siegfried Kracker, who was a kind of an editor in the newspaper, they would use the telephone quite a lot. But the more old fashioned group, uh, which is Walter Benjamin among them, they would write letters all the time. And we could 
obviously these let most of these letters nearly all of these letters are already being published so it's possible to reconstruct this network uh, as uh, as a kind of network of interactions at some point in his life in the late 20s benjamin tried himself something like that he uh, he uh, designed a diagram of his personal connections and this is a, this is a nice piece of uh, paper uh, to uh, something between a genealogical tree and a network where he tries to position himself before this journalistic writing is very much about positioning right positioning oneself to others grouping others into specific groups building clusters understanding the clusters correctly knowing the people who have the strongest networks knowing gatekeepers uh, being able to connect different groups uh, gaining network capital so the the very recent network metaphor uh, is very apt to analyze these kind of writings and another issue where, where this network is very simply uh, visible is obviously on the on the newspaper page right where different writers would have uh, would stand side by side and would even kind of have the more prestigious and the more marginal position it's very clear who's on the front page and who's somewhere in the margins so we have different uh, ways to approach this uh, kind of uh, hybrid writing that is uh, journalism so I think that's a really good point. And maybe just to add to that, I mean, I think to see the newspaper and the newspaper page as a kind of network is a really productive idea, a kind of different way of looking at the literary culture of the time. I mean, what's fascinating is that, of course, newspapers are sort of networks of authors that are put together by chance or at least just by an editor who decides to put them there. Whereas the diagram that Daniel has just described, which is probably one of several, in fact, the one that has survived and is in the National Library in Israel, was actually Benjamin's attempt to reconstruct a diagram he had drawn and lost. And so I think this idea of redrafting and trying to remember and reconstruct these connections is a really nice indication of how important Benjamin thought the, the, this idea was for himself, obviously. I mean, he never published this diagram. I don't think he did anything with it. It was obviously just an attempt to take stock of where he stood in the world and maybe just to give a bit more detail. So it is one page, one manuscript page, but actually when you look more closely, it's actually six separate little mini networks that are placed side by side or next to each other. So it's not, it's not a kind of coherent teleological structure where Benjamin is somehow at the end point of a series of intellectual forefathers or something. It's a much more messy kind of way of trying to visualize the different people he knew. And when you look at the names, there are family members there. And then there are people he knew personally, friends, including friends who were no longer alive. So also people from different stages of his life. You know, it's a visual spatial thing, but there's also a temporal dimension to this. So he's obviously trying to take stock of his life so far and what have been the different influences. But then also, I imagine, perhaps it was a way of looking forward as well. Where am I going to go next with these connections? What's missing in these connections? 
I mean, one, one of our main interests is kind of to defamiliarize the author and to find uh, ways of reading that are not so author focused as a lot of ways are. And this is uh, a theoretical issue at first, because I mean, th there are good reasons why academia has focused on individual authors for such a long time, because it gives you a somehow controlled corpus, this gives you a lot of uh, materials. And we are really into some extent in the open and we do not really know what, I mean, it's an experimental project as well, uh, if you will. And obviously, well, two challenges are with journalism is always, it's a lot. I mean, it's practically endless. It's a huge uh, uh, discourse and it's ephemeral, right? A lot of this has been written just uh, on the date and uh, maybe rightly vanished uh, quickly afterwards. So the question is, how should one deal with a corpus, uh, an, an incredible corpus? I mean, maybe just to come back uh, to that, Benjamin himself described his thought as, quote, a mobile and contradictory whole. So, you know, Benjamin himself was very aware that thinking is not unified and cannot be easily put into these categories of the big book and then the second book and maybe the third book and philosophical systems and so on. I'm not saying that Benjamin was always happy with that, but I think he acknowledged and accepted that his thinking was like that. Many academics today who also using social media tweets and blogs to demonstrate and attain relevance or impact. Do you think they can learn something from what uh, Walter Benjamin did a long time ago? I think it's, um, I mean, it's a different model of one's own activity. At least a lot of people I know would see this as two quite distinct things, uh, research and popularizing research. And the interesting mode here is something that in fact always happens in academia as well, namely working in groups, uh, working in networks, thinking about recognition, etc. Uh, and I think that these um, journalistic modes are a nice way of kind of, uh, on, on the one hand, of, of giving a paradigm how that, uh, or kind of an image how that can work. And on the other hand, uh, take out a little bit this kind of uh, uh, focus on modern technology. It's not something that totally depends on on on, a, on, on the virtual web or something like this. It's, it's actually also the technique of the classical Republic of Letters, right? So you have a, a distant network of acquaintances and colleagues and you, in a way, always interact with them. And there is a kind of semi-political, semi-private, semi-academic uh, interchange. So I think, as said, as, as research is always a lot about defamiliarizing. And I think that such a kind of a distant example might still be, uh, uh, still be revealing. But, as also Karina said, it's very much an experiment. We we don't we have to find ourselves a way into that. And the other question is obviously we don't yet know how the response is. That is the reason why we initially already planned a number of workshops with experts from different fields to discuss their our ideas with them, and that will we plan to continue in the future as well. But it's sort of this idea of positioning, Benjamin, and how we can map out the journalistic 
landscape of that time. That's really at the heart of what we're trying to do. Thank you so much for sharing this project with us. It sounds it might like lead us to a renewed, more social understanding of creative thinking. If anyone here listening may be able to help, please get in touch with us. Many thanks for listening to our work. We hope that you found it stimulating and that you will subscribe for more thought-provoking podcasts from artists and researchers working jointly in Oxford and Berlin. If you should like to get in touch, please email us on info at oib.ox.ac.uk.